things that we can't attain. When I was a kid growing up, it was the X-Men. That was the big thing. What was so unique about them? They had superpowers. Like, they call them Superman, not like average dude. Average dude doesn't excite you. It's like, oh, here's a guy that goes works at his office and he mows his grass every Saturday. Like, that doesn't excite you. But something about the natural being superimposed is kind of cool. And when we look at the reality of what we live in, we begin to determine is where do you and I dwell? Are we on the supernatural side, the spiritual world, if you will, or are we on the natural side? And so when we looked at the definition of reality, this is what Webster's has to say. It's the world of the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them, or the state of quality of having existence or substance. So as we said, that everything you see is actually kind of like a rendering of what really is. We, do, we see a solid metal pulpit but we know because we've been able to drill into this this is made up of not solid material but minute particles moving around and doing all the stuff that they do it's a rendering of of sort and when you look at this it's like okay as you and i as born again spirit-filled believers in the world today knowing the verse that we are in the world but not of it we should define what that means you see we have a church today that is trying to do everything it can to make the world embrace them. So in order to get the world to embrace you, what do you have to do? Be like the world. John George, if anybody has friends, and we've had him in here before. It's been several years since he's been here. Um, he's the brother of Willie George, who was Gospel Bill, if that helps any of you old-timers out. And uh, for the rest of you, he was the pastor of a very large church down in Tulsa recently. He's quasi-retired. You never actually retire from ministry, but he's quasi-retired. His son's taking over the church now. But his brother John put something out, and he was praying, like, Lord, what's coming in the 90s? This is, this is how far back, you know, we're talking about. And he says that the Hollywood will use the supernatural to draw in its people. The world will use the supernatural to draw on its people. But the church will use Hollywood to draw on its people. This is what the Holy Spirit told him back in the 80s. Now, if we're looking at that, would you guys say that that came to pass? Absolutely. What do we do? We are trying to make people like us so that they hear our voice. We compromise what a Sunday morning service should look like to not offend. That way people will come and listen. Because this has become the home of evangelism. If we just invite them to church, maybe they'll hear the gospel and maybe their lives will be changed forever. And yes, maybe that's true, but is that the biblical way? Are we thinking biblically or are we thinking carnally? We're thinking carnally in the sense that yes, our heart's in the right place, but we don't want to take the onus upon ourselves to go and actually present the gospel. We want someone to do it for us. It's the world we live in today. Right? You ever gone somewhere where, like, I'll tell you this, when we go to El Salvador, the last time we were down there, okay, we stay in a nice hotel. You know why we stay in a nice hotel? Because it's cheap. That's why we stay in a nice hotel. And the food's fantastic. They have pupusas. And the last time, somehow, I don't know how Jim pulled this up, but Isaac and myself, Isaac was with me, and then our friend Craig, who was from Washington at that point, we got up on the seventh floor of this hotel. You know what happens on the seventh floor? It comes with a concierge room. Oh, man. I never had one of those before. I didn't even know what it was. What happens is those of us on that floor, and you had to have the special key card to get to that floor. 
okay? So Jim couldn't come visit us. He wasn't on that floor. So we'd, we'd go up there, and we'd walk into this room, and when we walk in, they had all these hors d'oeuvres just sitting there. And we're like, okay, my kind of people. And so we sit down, and this El Salvadorian comes up, and his best broken English possible, can I get you guys anything to drink? I'm like, how about a pineapple juice? It's like, you got it. Brings it back to me. I said, how much do I owe you? It's on the house. You're on the seventh floor. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. My immediate response is, well, what else you got? So every night, we're in there. And the guy's name, I can't remember, it was Jose. It started with a J, but they don't say J's, so it sounds like an H. And they need to learn how to pronounce their names right. And uh, all this, every night we're up there, and it was like the world was our oyster. It was spectacular. But that's not reality for Chris. I mean, I went home. I looked at my wife. I said, how about a pineapple juice? She's like, yeah, why don't you bring me one too? <laughs> Reality set back in. But the thing is, is that when, as we as believers, we are expected to do something different, and yet we're trying to draw the world through, to us through certain things. Thousands, if not millions of dollars are spent every year on, on events and things to draw people in. But look what Jesus said. John chapter 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. Okay, so where are we at? We're in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So what's he talking about? He is praying. He's getting ready to ascend. Or, I mean, go to the cross. He's praying to the Father, Lord, I'm not in this world. They've hated me. They've hated your word. They hated your truth. And they will hate them. But don't take them out. Protect them from. And so when we look at this, we're like, okay, there's clearly a distinction between believer and unbeliever. As I told you before, what was the distinction prior to the cross? It was Israel and Gentile. You either Jew or you were not. The Jews were the people of God. God's chosen people. Why were they God's chosen people? Because God chose them. Why did he not choose somebody else? I don't know. All happens at the Tower of Babel. Chooses Abraham. We'll get to that in a minute. We see a distinction in the two groups of people. Then it becomes believer and unbeliever. And we went through this last week is why we're not going to do this for time's sake. It is believer and unbeliever. With believer comes expectation, comes responsibility. With unbeliever, do you know what ducks do? They quack. And dogs, they bark. And yet we expect our moral fortitude to just bleed off onto them without a change of the heart and a fulfilling of the Spirit of God in them. We want to fight moral fights all day long. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But with that, we must preach the gospel. Because without a change of heart, it won't matter. And this is where we failed. So we see... There are two distinctions in these groups of people. That's where we went last week. Now, let's look at this, and let's look at what God's plan was from the beginning. 
Because ultimately, I think we would all agree with this, we want to fulfill what God's plan is. If you've been in the church long enough and been around as long as I have, and some of you have been around longer than I have, you can remember a time where all you were told is that you must figure out your calling and fulfill your purpose in life, that God has called you uniquely to. And it was so in your mind, and that of course meant ministry, that was always ministry, it was you're called to ministry, you got to figure that out, whatever. And now we've changed it to, you must fulfill your destiny, fulfill your purpose and all of that, figuring out what that is. Do you know what the center of all of that is? It's always us. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it also interesting that it seems like every time we get something that we want, we assume that it must have come from God. I don't know if that's irony or not, but whatever. We see a distinction of the two groups of people. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1. Now faith... It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now let's stop here. It says, now faith is, and what is it? So Paul here, I say Paul, you guys know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was Paul, just in case you're wondering. Now faith is... The substance of things that are hoped for. So what does the word faith mean? It's not blind faith. It is simply a trust. We are trusting in the things that are hoped for and is evidenced by things that are not seen. Do we have evidence of things that are not seen? Yeah, this. Because what truly makes this up is not what you see here. And when somebody is born again, what truly makes them up is not what you see. It is the spirit man inside of them that you don't see. As we saw last week when we're reading in Kings and we're talking about Elisha and he said, open his eyes that he may see as the armies of Syria are coming around. He's freaking out and there's angels and chariots and all of this stuff all around. There was a side of things that he could not see. But when God opened his eyes, everything changed. Was it by faith at that point? No, he didn't have to trust that it was happening. He could see it happening, right? Okay. So, for by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. What is the it? It's the faith, their trust in the word of God. That's what it always comes back to. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, it says that by faith, we understand the world were framed by the word of God. Why is it by faith? We weren't there. We are dependent. How do we know that God created everything? Did you have a revelation of that? Did you walk out of your house one day and there was a cloud formation that said, made by God? No. What do we have? The written testimony of Moses, confirmed by other writers. So why is it by faith? We're putting our trust in their words. Can you verify that? Absolutely you can. Okay? That is why it's by faith. We weren't there. It doesn't have to be by trust if you saw it with your own eyes. So, let's go back to the beginning and look at what God did. Now, I ask this question all the time. Think about it. We're going to Genesis chapter 1. Don't go there yet. What is the very first thing that God created? The heavens and the earth. You're almost right. You're so close. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Well, there it is, the heavens and the earth. Is that not the first thing he created? You're almost right, because the beginning, time, is instituted. That moment. And we know that time through science and all this other stuff has physical properties. It is a created substance just like everything else. In the beginning, time, God created the heaven, space, and the earth matter. And from that point on, everything was formed from those three things. So God creates this world, and we know the story. And again, for time's sake, we're not going through all of this. But he creates the birds and the water and all of that. But then he makes something unique. Something unlike anything else that he had ever created. And that is man. Now let's jump down to verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who created the other genders? The media. All right, sorry, I'm moving on. Verse 28, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, let's camp here for a moment. Now, I've addressed some of this stuff before, but when we hear the term God made us in his image, what do we immediately assume? Fingers, faces, all of that kind of stuff. And while that might be correct, when it talks about this, in the Hebrew it literally means that God made man to be his imager. And an imager is one who represents the source that they came from. Okay? So, like it or not, your children could be your imager. And sometimes we're okay with that. Not always. So God made man unique from every other creation. We know he breathed the breath of life. But he also did something unique. He gave him responsibility. He gave him a job. Look at what he says here. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. What does that mean? To rule over. What? The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, is there anything that was created on this earth that man was to not have dominion over? No, it it says everything. Over all the earth, including the earth. Then if we go on, so God created man in his own image. The image of God he created in male and female. He created them. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then do what? Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does it mean to subdue? Now, some will argue this means that it's like there was this battle going on and stuff. That's not what it's talking about. It literally means to reign. So, as God's imager, Adam and Eve had the authority of God to enact on his behalf. Right? I mean, that's literally what is happening here. 
Because we know what happens next. The serpent comes, the fall happens, all of that. They lose that dominion. But prior to that, assume for a moment that that hadn't happened. What happens? They were to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, expand the garden. We know in chapter 2 of Genesis that God plants the garden eastward in Eden. Then he takes the man and places him in that garden. He brings all the animals to Adam to name them. What do naming rights give you? Authority over. Right? I mean, you name your children. Is your children assigned name? Is it going to a big spinny wheel at the hospital? And whatever it spits out? No, because you have an authority and an ownership over the child. When you get a new puppy, do you get to name them? Only if you don't have kids. That's when names like Oreo and Cupcake come about. You see, there's something about the name. You can see the dominion that Adam had to rule and represent God on the earth. Now, I don't want to go into all of this, but you also have to understand that there's been a, uh, it's just been a teaching that's been implied for a long time, but, but Eden was the domain of God. Where the serpent would be, being Satan himself, an angelic being, I believe that the fall we see in chapter 3, there's a whole thing, I've taught on this before, I don't have time to go into it. But I mean, this was the domain of God, and God handed the keys, so to speak, to Adam and said, listen, you be my imager on the earth. When were the angels made? Let's go to Job chapter 38. We'll start in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So when do you lay the foundation? First thing you do. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? And who laid the, count the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Morning stars and the sons of God. Sons of God, Benai Elohim, is a reference to angels. Where were they when he laid the cornerstone? They were there, and they shouted for joy. He's, he's scolding Job here. So the angelic beings were created first. He's creating a family, if you will, with man being at the pinnacle, man on this earth to rule and to reign. Those are words that we don't like to say anymore, but that's really what was happening. So when Adam made the decision on what to name the hippopotamus, guess what? He stuck with that name. There was no negotiation. There was a dominion that was there. But then we know what happens. Because of Genesis 3 and the serpent comes in, mankind falls and sins. And where does authority go? It was stripped from man. We assume and understand this is an assumption being made. At that point that authority now transferred over to its new ruler, thus being the enemy. We see Jesus going and taking the keys of the kingdom. We see a lot of things. There's no verse that directly says that, but there are a lot that imply it. So understand, we may not be exactly 100% accurate in that. But there was something to it. How do we know this? Because in the temptation of Jesus, he says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. It's not a temptation if he doesn't have a right to it. If I offer to write you a million dollar check and all you have to do is go and like rob a bank for me and still 500,000 and I'll give you a million on top of it for whatever reason you wouldn't be tempted by it because you know million dollar check won't clear 
There's no temptation. So there's something to the fact that he had the ability to give this over to him to thus make it a temptation. So we know something transpired here. So as a result of that, we see the things that happened. We see the Cain and Abel story. We see um, the, the Nephilim story and the fallen angels and all that kind of stuff. But God had created a family with who at the top? Man. Understand that. We fast forward a little bit. After the Tower of Babel, what's the next thing that God does? He divides the nation, 70 nations, and he takes one as his inheritance. That one being Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says that to Abram. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Did he make this promise to any other person? Not that we know of. There's no record of it. So God is setting up something distinct. Something about this nation. So we see in chapter 1 of Genesis that you've got man distinct from all other created beings on this earth. And man was to rule over all over created beings on this earth. Now go to chapter 15. Here we see the setting up of the covenant, <coughs> excuse me, with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you should go to your fathers in peace, and you should be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, what did he just say? They're going to be in a land that is not theirs. They will serve that nation. God will judge that nation. They will come out with great possessions. But Abram, you will never see the land that I have promised. The land that belonged to whom? These other nations. So he's making a guarantee to this chosen people that they are going to, yes, be in bondage, but when they come out, they're going to have great possession and they're going to walk into a land that God is providing for them. He's driving out the other nations and he is going to place them there as his chosen people. Does that mean to you and to me that there seems to be a distinction being made between the nation of Israel and all the other nations? Absolutely, no question. Look at chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men rose and from look towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them and sent them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And says, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now that's interesting here. Because what's going on is the whole story with Sodom and Gomorrah, and you guys know that. And he appears to Abraham 
and they, they fellowship and they eat and all that. And as they're leaving, what does he say? Hide what I am doing from Abraham. Since he will surely become a great and mighty nation. So in other words, Abraham has a unique position that God has put him in and respects him and says, I'm going to tell him the things that I'm going to do. What other nation has he done this with? What other person has he done this with? There isn't one. At this point, anyway. So, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Who will be blessed? All the nations. As a result of what? This nation, beginning with this man, being obedient to the calling of God in his life. You see, it all starts here. Was there something unique about Abraham? Was he like everybody else? In a natural sense, yes. But in a spiritual sense, no. Could God have chosen somebody else? Why not? There's nothing anywhere that says anything unique about Abraham. But he chose Abraham... Abraham obeyed him, followed, even put his own son up, prepared for him to be sacrificed, knowing that God would raise him from the dead because God is true to his word and promised that Isaac would have seed. So he knew this, and so because of this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham was obedient to God. So right now, at this point, it is Abraham and everybody else. You guys see that? Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. We're fast-forwarding a little bit. We're just going through some of this Old Testament stuff so you can see here. Verse 5, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now he's talking to the nation. They've come out. They've crossed the Red Sea. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. Now, what does he make a promise to these people? You will be a special treasure above whom? This is the beginning where we see you have Israel and everybody else. Before it was Abraham and everybody else. Now it's Israel and everybody else. You will be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. Now that's powerful because there was already kingdoms of priests. But there was not a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart for service what the holy literally means it is now set apart it is unique in and of itself so this kingdom of priests that god is going to establish is a holy nation that means if you want to know about the one true god how do you find out it's through these people they are the example to the world of what it takes to please yahweh there are many gods but none like him Let's go to chapter 34, verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people 
among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest there be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take his daughter for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So what's he saying? You're preparing to go into the land that I have given you. And when you get there, drive them out. Do not make a covenant. Can you make covenants with people who are just like you? Absolutely. But this nation was not like any other nation. They were unique. There were things about them that the average person could not understand. Even to this day, there's never been a nation in the history of mankind that was driven from a land and then uniquely, thousands of years later, comes back. It's never happened. Here we see that if you go in there and you play the harlot, what happens? You're like everybody else, but they were to be unique. And if they maintained this covenant, they would be blessed. And ultimately, all the nations would be blessed. Look at Joshua chapter 4. I want to show you this again. Verse 19. Now, the people came up from Jordan on the tenth day of the first month in the camp in Gilgal at the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. And for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. See, they're beginning to go into the promised land. And what does God do? He dries up the river as they go across. They set up a memorial. Why did they set up the memorial? So when your children ask, you can tell them what God did for whom? Israel. What other nation did God do this for? There aren't any. You see, they were unique. Why? That all, verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, and that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see, the things that God did with this nation through their obedience was a message to the entire world who God was. Think about it. When they crossed the Red Sea, it struck fear in the hearts of every nation they came across. When they went to Jericho, they were fearful because they heard what Yahweh had done for them. There was something about them unique. Now look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Verse 32 says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country, for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, 
that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Now who's speaking here? This is Solomon. He's dedicating the temple. The temple was for whom? The nation of Israel. Inside of it was where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the mercy seat, the throne of God, in the Holy of Holies, and outside of that was where this nation of priests would come and perform the sacrifices and do all of this other stuff. But look what he said. Let's read this again. Concerning a foreigner. Who's a foreigner? A not-Israelite. Any of them. What does he say? Who is not of your people, Israel, who has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls you. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. You see, the temple was the light of the world. This is where the presence of God was. If you wanted to make a sacrifice to Yahweh, what did it have to be? It had to be at that temple. Foreigners were not entitled to this position. However, when they came with a humble heart, it's the Hebrew word G-I-R-G-E-R, they would come in, they would reject their heritage and all of that, and they were to be treated as a natural-born citizen. But the entire world could now see that God was who He says He was. When they come from a far country, because of the sake of your great name, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm. When they heard of the miracles and the blessings of the nation that made them distinct as a people, it was a cry out to the world that they had the Lord of Lords. You guys see that? You see, so God created man unique in himself, with a family, with a unique relationship, unlike any other creation, and gave him authority and dominion. God then later takes a nation of people, starting with Abraham, and puts them into a land that he provided for them as unique and distinct with a certain responsibility to be a light to the world. Because those Levitical laws that we don't like to read and all of that were ways for them to maintain that relationship and that obedience with God. And when they would be attacked on the Sabbath, did they take up arms? No. God would protect them because they were honoring the Sabbath. There were things that were unique about them that was unlike any other nation. And as long as they stayed and maintained that covenant, they were blessed unlike any other nation. Look at Solomon, the wisest and richest man ever. The Queen of Sheba would come over and be so amazed and impressed with what God had provided. In other words, his great wealth was a sign of God's goodness and that goodness impressed her. But look at Matthew chapter 5. It says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this is early in Jesus' ministry. Now let me ask you this. Because this was written prior to the cross, prior to the new covenant being instilled. What is he talking about here? You, individual, are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. You see, the temple had been the light of the world. When they would 
uh, raise those giant lights, you could see them from miles and miles away because there was no street lights. It was dark. And it would draw people in there. It's, a, it's an analogy that he's being used that they would have understood. But he's saying, now, you are the light of the world. Why is he setting this up? He's setting them up because the temple of the Holy Spirit is about to change to the one that is not made with hands. They are now going to be the examples that and have with that the dominion that God had originally planned out. You see, they once again are going to be God's imagers. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You guys know this. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know what that word ambassador means? It's the same thing as the word imager means. It's your representative. We are the representative of Christ as though God through us was pleading for you to be reconciled to him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who were called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who is he talking about? Believers. The distinction has changed. The nation of Israel is still important, don't misunderstand me. But it is no longer Jew and everybody else. It's now believer and unbeliever. You see, from the beginning, Adam was God's representative on the earth. So when Adam failed, what does that imply? God fails, so to speak. Don't take that too far. When the nation of Israel, when they were successful, they were seeing God's blessing. When they were failing, they were seeing God's cursing. But what were they to be? Had they just kept the covenant, would they have only experienced God's blessings? Yes. And because of those blessings and the power of God moving on their behalf, the nations knew there was no other God. So who is our example? Who are you and I to follow today on this earth? When we read Scripture, do we read it and do we look at guys like Philip as our example? Or maybe Stephen who was martyred for his faith because he wouldn't back down. He stood up in the face of the leadership of Israel and he just let them have it and presented their entire history to them of every time they missed God moving and how they killed the prophets when the word of God was sent to them and it cost him his life. Are those the examples that we are to follow? Or what about maybe one of the apostles, Peter or Paul, James or John, any of them? Are they the guys that we're to look at and say, man, we need to replicate what they were doing because Paul was willing to go everywhere, wherever it was. He went and he preached and he was beaten and he was shipwrecked and he was hungry and he was broke, but it never stopped him. He was always on mission from God. Should that be who we represent? Or maybe Peter who when he was out there preaching and they arrested him for preaching in the name and they beat him and said, whatever you do, 
We're going to let you go, but you cannot teach in that name anymore. And so what does he do? He goes home to his followers. He said, we were just arrested and beaten for this. And they praised and thanked God for the opportunity that they had to be beaten for the sake of the gospel. And then they went out there and they did it again. Is that who we look to as the example of how you and I are to walk on this earth today? Look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me. Just as I imitate Christ. You see, if you're imitating Paul, then you're imitating Christ. Because Paul was imitating Christ. Who is the example that you and I are to follow? It is only the life of Jesus. That's it. All these other men are representatives thereof. And sometimes they got it right. And we saw sometimes they got it wrong. Paul and Peter had a spat. They weren't perfect. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Which means what? That if I stop imitating Christ, don't imitate me. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, that's interesting. Imitators of God as dear children. Think about your kids. If you don't like what your children say, they probably heard it from you. If you don't like how they act, they probably got it from you. I'm saying probably because that's not always true. But you know how little kids, they follow their parents around and they do what they do and they say what they say? Can I tell you a funny story? I like my stories. Apparently when I was two, my mom put me in a cart and we're going through Kmart. Okay? You guys remember Kmart? Some of y'all may not be old enough to remember Kmart, but it was a thing. And uh, we've got to remember, my family was not born again folk. You know, we were carnal for a long time. And I don't remember what I had done. I'd done something. And my mom's getting on me. And I guess I yelled at the top of my lungs, No, mom, don't beat my... I did not say but. My mom was petrified. Do you know why, as a two-year-old, I made that statement? Because every time I was misbehaving, she said, I'm going to beat your... And she did not say but, apparently. I don't remember this. As dear children, be imitators of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to imitate God and imitate Christ? Well, we should look at what he did, and we should look at what he said. Don't you think? See, look at John chapter 17. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. This is Jesus talking. They were yours. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. You see a distinction there? And all mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Jesus is talking about his following. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they will all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, and that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, as you have loved me. Now let me stop there for a second. Now do you see the clear distinction here? Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's not praying for the rest of the world. He's saying, Lord, keep them in this world as they give the word. Then those who believe in him as a result of their word, keep them. And he keeps going on. I in them, you in me, they may be perfect in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. You see, you and I are an example to the world of the goodness of God. Israel was an example to the world of the goodness of God. Adam was an example to the world, even though he failed, of the goodness of God. Adam had a rights and dominion and authority. Israel had rights and dominion and authority. And you and I have rights and dominion and authority. Why is that? Because the Father was in Jesus and Jesus is in us. Look at verse 12. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am and they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to you uh, them your name. And will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. You see, Jesus is looking out for his own. And he's also looking out for those who will come as a result of the work that they will do. He's talking about this in full circle. You and I, as spirit-filled, born-again believers, are unique to this world. We are not of it. And the harder we try to meld these worlds together, the bigger we will fail. We have to be set apart, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. What were priests? They were the representatives of God to the nation. 
an Israelite man could not enter into the holy place and perform his own sacrifice. It had to be somebody unique. They were a representative, a go-between between God and man. You and I are the go-between between God and this world. We are in it. We are not of it. These are all things that you know, but you have to understand that this is God bringing everything full circle. He created a world in perfection, and paradise was lost. He will recreate a world in perfection, and paradise will be regained. And for right now, you and I are His imagers on this earth, His representatives, His hands, His feet, and His mouth. And if we are to exemplify the actions of anybody, it should not be somebody we read about. It should be Jesus Himself. How do we know that? Look at 1 John chapter 2. This is the last one, I promise. Verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, He who says, I know Him, is not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Who's He? Then why are we settling? And compromising so much. If we are in Him, He in us, then why are we not walking as He walked? You see, when we hear that, we always think of some sort of a moral issue, but we really need to examine how did Jesus walk? What did He do? What did He say? And is there a truly a biblical expectation for us to do the same? It's a great question, which we will get into next week. Okay? We're setting this up. Now, I want to do one thing before we leave. Most of you guys know, and we're here. Brett and Ashley got married yesterday. We're very excited for them. They're going to be heading down to Kansas City for a little mini honeymoon getaway for a few days. They're going to take the big one in the world. But I would like to pray for them as a church. If you guys will come up, and anybody wants to come on up, I didn't prepare them for this. I'm just going to embarrass them right now. They're not, they're not tired of being the center of attention. But if anybody would like to come up and just lay hands on these guys as a couple, we just want to bless them. It's always a privilege, guys, when we get to be a part of the lives of a young couple, and even an old couple for that matter, as they <laughs> enter into a, a bond of marriage of which it is a representative of Christ in the church. And so it truly is an honor and a blessing, and, and we just want to lay hands on them and we want to send them out right. So, Father, we thank you for this young couple. We thank you that their hearts belong to you. And that they are your representatives. Not just as individuals, but now as they come together to be one flesh, that as a couple, they will represent you everywhere they go, to all their friends and family. That every decision that is made by them will be led by you, Lord. That they are listening and in tune to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I just ask that you pour a blessing out upon them right now. Pour your spirit out upon them. Lord, as they get away for a few days to have some couple time, Lord, we just thank you that you just give them safe travels. And Lord, they have a wonderful time together. And Father, we thank you that as the children that come from this marriage will be devoted to you, Lord. That this is a, a family tree changing moment. Lord, that this will be a family that will be of service to you. That in every word they say, every action they take, will be to bring glory to you. And so, Lord, we thank you that as a church family, we get the opportunity to bless them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, guys, God bless you. I did have a few people ask. They are going out of town. If you want to give them an old Pentecostal handshake, I'm sure they would love it. Uh, But anyway, God bless you guys. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.